Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. Next up on our release of talks from Baltimore's RipperCon, Jack the Ripper and True Crime Convention, is Robert Anderson presenting Team Syphilis's examination of the Long Island serial killer, entitled An Incident at Oak Beach, Ripperologists Look at Lisk. And following Robert's talk is a 25-minute conversation with crime forensics expert Professor Charles Tomosa. Be sure to download a PDF of the slideshow that accompanied this talk, which is available on this episode's podcast page on casebook.org. Team Syphilis for this outing is Robert Anderson, Mark Ripper, Livia Trivia, Peter Whitby, Katya Nieder, Trevor Bond, John Reese, and Mike Flores. And I'll hand it over to Chris George in Baltimore to complete the introduction of Robert Anderson and an incident at Oak Beach. C for Repicon is the managing editor of the casebook Jack the Ripper Wiki, uh, located at uh, wiki.casebook.org, as well as a senior moderator at jtrforums.com where he goes under the handle of Sir Robert Anderson, which sounds like a steal to me. Don't mind me giving a trade name. <laughs> In 2007, he led an effort to take a fresh look at the gas-liquid chromatography analysis of the Maybrick Diary, Inc., carried out by Leeds University in 1994 efforts he detailed at the 2012 York Jack the Ripper Conference. At the Salisbury Jack the Ripper Conference in 2014, he addressed issues regarding venereal disease in Whitechapel. I never knew that. I never knew you knew anything about uh, venereal disease in Whitechapel. That's amazing. Um, Well, you've heard all about that, or more than you ever wanted to know. When he is not trying to run James Maybrick to ground, Sir Robert is a biotech venture capitalist. After a a 20-year career at Goldman Sachs and Lehman Brothers and has a keen interest in health and medical issues, he holds a master's degree from the Harvard Business School. Robert. Thank you. Sound up on this. Uh, we have Jack the Ripper in America, a helpful comment by John Ray, who is uh, the Gilbert family attorney. Uh, attorney uh, Marie Gilbert is the mother of Shannon Gilbert. I love this particular quote. We still get tips every day. Unfortunately, most of them seem to be involved women who suspect their husband to be the killer. This is the gentleman who's the newly appointed police commissioner of Suffolk County. Uh, There's a fantastic book on this case. It also happens to be the only book on the case, and I heartily recommend everyone pick it up and read it. There's one problem with it, and it's not written in chronological order. So you will be left at the end of it trying to figure out what happened to whom and when. And unfortunately, I am in the predicament of standing in front of you still trying to figure out what happened to whom and when. But I, you should pick it up.
All right. The killings occurred on Long Island. And this may sound like an incredibly trite statement, but it is long and it is an island. And the reason why I mention this to you is because a lot of theorizing about the case involves Lisk somehow being connected to beaches, somehow connected being to boats, somehow being connected to water. And I would just point out that every single person that lives here is not that far from water. And many, many people in the middle of this island also own boats. There is, so there's no need for Lisk to live on the coast so you could be anywhere on this island and own a boat and have access to water. And that assumes that a boat even plays any factor in this case, which is completely unproven. Now, as ripperologists, we all know how much grief Jack caused by killing on the border between the Met police and the city police. And online, as well as in the book Lost Girls, you'll find there's a lot of uh, denigration of police efforts in this case. And I always believe don't assume malignancy or conspiracy when you can actually attribute something to bureaucracy. And with respect to the LISC crimes, we have no fewer than seven police jurisdictions. Because one of the, some of the victims were in Connecticut, some in New Jersey. Uh, Staten Island, uh, a, a, a Staten Island police officer was one of the last known contacts with one of the victims. So Staten Island pops up, and right, so right here we have the New York City police. Here, Nassau County. Here, in the beaches, we have the New York State troopers who are involved, and we have Suffolk County. And overarching it all is the FBI. So. The LISC investigation requires a coordination of no fewer than seven police jurisdictions. And so it's not surprising to me that everyone isn't necessarily all on the same page. All right, now, one of the things that really struck me yesterday, Nikita, you made comments about how uh, the Yorkville Ripper sort of impacted your childhood. And, well, I'm 60 years old now, so I'm not a child, obviously, but this case really resonated with me because I grew up near here, and uh, my parents at an early age moved us out to Hicksville, which I have labeled me, and my parents and I, this was our beach. This is where we used to go, and, I, and we'd go on every weekend in, in, the, in, in the summer. And so for years, we've gone down Wontaw, down to Tobey Beach, and Tobey Beach happens to be right over from Gilgo. So I know the area really well, and it's no surprise that, <laughs> that it would turn out to be a place where it's convenient to dump bodies. But the, the thing that I want you to understand is that it doesn't mean that anybody had to live here in order to dump bodies. It's a very logical place. Why? It's because here on Long Island, you've got three or four major east-west highways, and you've got two north-south highways that one feeds directly into Jones Beach, and the other one goes over the Robert Moses Causeway, and lo and behold, dumps you right near Gilgo. So if the killer was looking for accessibility and speed to 
dispose of parcels, this area makes complete sense in the off season. Because in the off season, oh, well, it disappeared. The, the Ocean Parkway has virtually no traffic. So if he was driving by at 2, 3 in the morning uh, and tossing a parcel into the brush, no one would be the wiser. So just don't, don't fixate on this as the area from which Lisk hails. He's somewhere from Long Island, we don't know where, but not necessarily from where the bodies are found. All right, hearkening back to what I had to say about uh, bureaucracy and uh, conspiracy theories and all like, there's just one thing I want you people to understand is that on top of seven different police jurisdictions, during the course of the Lisk case, We've had tremendous turnover in the executives of Suffolk County. Uh, we've had a change in the chief executive. We've had uh, the police commissioner has changed. Very controversially so, this man, James Burke, actually has been removed by office because he was arrested. And he's being charged by the feds on a variety of things which are not risk-related. But what has come about is that it is now clear that James Burke kept the FBI at arm's length. According to the internet, it's because he's trying to hold back the list investigation. The reality is that he was holding back an investigation of James Burke. And you've also had a change in the uh, chief detectives. So when people say, well, you know, not much progress has been made on this case, or there's a lot of contradictory information floating around, I'm just going to say that it's explicable. It's not pretty, but it's explicable. All right. And as I said, one of the things that we suffer from here is a lack of a timeline. If there's one thing ripperologists are good about, it's creating timelines. So the case, as far as we know, kicks off in April of 1995, where a pair of legs washed up on Fire Island which is adjacent to Gilgo Beach, Paralegs. In December 2000, a torso was found in Manorville. Manorville is about 40 miles east of Gilgo Beach, and it's served by a major highway, the Long Island Expressway, which gets back to my theme that you can explain the, the dump sites as being accessible and barren and deserted, and a great place to just simply go in and toss some remains. All right, things were relatively dormant for a couple of years. In July 2003, also in Manorville, the torso of Jessica Taylor was found. Now, I am going to discuss in great detail the case of Shannon Gilbert, who is not on this, but it was her disappearance that led to a very painstaking search of the Gilgo Beach area, and four victims were found buried in ritualistic fashion. Uh, it's widely believed that they were wrapped in burlap, and I have to tell you that every single time someone from the police has been interviewed about the subject of the burlap, Every single time, the police have pushed back, said, we have never said that these bodies were buried or wrapped in burlap. You said that, the press. Having said that, it has surrounded the case from the very beginning. It is a given that the Gilgo Four were found in the brush off Gilgo Beach, wrapped in burlap. Uh, we don't know a lot about the condition of the bodies 
early indications from reporters were that the victims were skeletonized or defleshed, and we'll get into that later. But just bear in mind that they were found because this person disappeared. Oh, sorry about that. So we haven't built up the crescendo yet. All right. After the Gilgo Beach floor were found, and they started to continue to search the area, the skull, hands, and forearm of Jessica Taylor, whose torso, you may remember, was found in Manorville, was found in Cedar Beach. Cedar Beach is also adjacent to Gilgo. All right, more flying games. April 2011, more things are found. Also on Cedar Beach, also in Jones Beach. Jane Doe, number six, heads, hand, and right feet. Jane Doe, number seven, skull and teeth. They, if this is not complicated enough for you, April 2011, later that same month, they found a John Doe who was an Asian male who was dressed in women's clothing. Why, we do not know. They also found a toddler. The toddler's body was intact and wrapped in a blanket. She's, she's known as Baby Doe. Late, even later that month, in Zach's Bay, which is near Jones Beach, the mother of Baby Doe was found. To make life even more complicated for us, Baby Doe was not found buried near the mother. Not far, but not in the same uh, dump site. And finally, 2011, they found the body of Shannon Gilbert. All the roads in this case lead through Shannon Gilbert. The question, just as in Ripperology, does Anderson know what the hell he was talking about with his suspect? All roads in this case lead to the issue of whether or not Shannon Gilbert was a Lisk victim. Because if she was, there's a high probability that Lisk was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Peter Hackett, who lived in the Oak Beach Island community nearby. Now, on online discussions, he's usually referred to by initials because people are terrified of being sued. I'm going to argue in some great detail that the gentleman is in, completely innocent. So I don't have any problems in naming him. However, he is a prime suspect, so to speak. All right. I'm going to go through a timeline of the events of March 1st, 2010, when Shannon Gilbert disappeared at the Oak Beach Island community. The timeline will make no sense if I don't first show you some pictures of what in God's name the Oak Beach Island community looks like. And so we took a ride out there a couple of days ago. And we went out this time of year because she disappeared in, uh, in May. So it's as close as we can get to the conditions you would find out there that time of year. Because it's, it's rather important, because the vegetation isn't as overgrown as it would have been you know, in later months. All right, this is the infamous Oak Beach Island community. And on the night she disappeared, Janet, Shannon Gilbert, who was an escort, and her driver would, were, would have driven, driven here there's a gate, which we're going to show you in a moment. Uh, the John came out from his home here, went there, opened the gate for them, 
Shannon's driver, Pack and Brewer, drove to Brewer's house. Things got seriously weird much later, and I don't, I'm not going to go into that right now, but sometime in the wee hours of March, uh, sorry, May 1st, Shannon Gilbert started running from Brewer's house. She ran down this road. Up here, where's, where's the gate? And we're going to show you the gate. She then hung a right, ran down Anchor Way, made a squiggle here, turned here, which is where the aforementioned Dr. Hackett lived, and she disappeared into this marsh brush astonishingly overgrown area that is adjacent to the community. And what you need to keep in mind is that 18 months later, they found Shannon Gilbert's belongings here, and they found her body a quarter of a mile away here, actually a little bit closer to the highway. It would appear that she was making, she was making an effort to get to the highway, all right? The only problem with all this is that she would have passed the gate, which, as you will see, would have been extraordinarily simple for her to leave the community at that point. But that's the path. Now, one of the interesting aspects of the community there is that they have jetties, all right? What do these people use to make their jetties out of? Discarded tombstones. So, you know, cue your favorite horror movie, uh, you know, uh, so you've got piles of tombstones here. This is looking into Oak Beach. You can't enter from here because there's a fence and there's a cliff, a sort of a cliff here. But this is what the community looks like. It's right on the beach. This is the sign as you drive down to the gate. All right, that's my rear. That's one of my my mirrors. Uh, that's the sign, and that's the famous gate, and that's a sign to the roads within the community. The community is not very large. All right. This is the money shot, because Shannon Gilbert would have come running down the parkway here, the causeway here, and she could have oh so easily left the community right here. Instead, she continued running down here. All right, this is an unidentified suspect. <laughs> this is on that path, which is known as Anchor Way. And I'm standing in front of the brush. Uh, since the road is a little bit lower than here, I'm going to say the brush comes up about here on me, about shoulder, about shoulder length. It's impenetrable. This is a highlight of it, and you can see it's all thorns. I, I honestly can't imagine how you'd run through this, but obviously someone did. Another picture of the brush. This is what we believe is Dr. Hackett's house. It's not really incredibly important which house it is, but I tried to identify it using uh, old Zillow ad because he recently sold the property. What's next to the property is, what, uh, is a pathway that would lead into, into the brush. So what we believe is that Shannon, who came running down Anchor Way, turned here, went near Dr. Hackett's house, then ran up this, and then disappeared into the brush. Right? So now you have a you know, mental picture of, of the scene that night. All right, now 
I don't want anybody to leave here with even the remotest thought that it's possible for Dr. Hackett to have been uh, involved in the disappearance of Shannon Gilbert. And one of the things that no one has done in this case is actually try to recreate the evening minute by minute. And one is actually able to because a whole bunch of people called 911 and people have been interviewed. Now, this is an internet comment. I'm sorry, but it's insulting to anyone's intelligence to suggest that Shannon Gilbert was not a murder victim when the last thing she did while still alive is call 911 and tell the operator that someone is trying to kill her. This person is a former sex worker. All right, this is from Dr. Hackett. This internet mechanism of prosecuting people, where do these people come from? I ask myself the same. This is Dr. Hackett. You need to know two things about Dr. Hackett. One is he has an implanted heart defibrillator, and the man has one leg. All right. I'm going to go minute by minute the night Shannon Gilbert disappeared. It can be a little tedious, but as I say, the heart of this case is whether or not Shannon Gilbert died at Oak Beach because she was murdered. All right. There's no, there's no real argument that Shannon Gilbert and her driver, Pack, left Manhattan at 12 a.m. in order to head out to an appointment with Joseph Brewer, her John. At 2 a.m., Shannon and Pack arrive at Oak Beach. Brewer comes to the gatehouse, which I've already shown you, to let them in. Everyone, the police and the family, agree that Shannon agreed arrived at 2 a.m. At 2.30, Shannon and Brewer went out together in his car and returned shortly thereafter. We're not sure why they did this. The most reasonable explanation is they went out to procure drugs. The sister of one of the other victims said of internet escorting that eight out of 10 tricks involve the use of drugs. So I'm going to say common sense involves them doing a late night run to procure something. What it is, we don't know. After they return, Shannon called her driver and requested playing cards, baby oil, and KY jelly. Her driver declined to drive out and get those. Shannon then tells the driver she will find her own way home. At 2.55 a.m., Shannon called a 24-hour CVX in West Islip. And to the listeners that don't know what CVX is, it's a large drugstore chain. It's a large pharmacy chain. Between 2.57 and 4.09 a.m., there are six calls between Shannon and Pack, the driver. Now, this is when the timeline gets a little uncertain because we believe around 4.45 a.m., for some reason, Shannon becomes agitated. At 4.50, Brewer, the, the John, goes out to the driver who's waiting outside his house in his car and invites him into his home, saying that Shannon will not leave. Brewer and Pat try to calm Shannon, According to them, she responded by hiding underneath Brewer's, behind Brewer's sofa. Right. 
At 4.51 a.m., Shannon makes a 9-11 call that will last for 23 minutes. This is incredibly important to the case because for the next 23 minutes, that her cell phone was open and the police can hear the conversations between her and other people. For example, the police can hear Brewer and Pack in the background. Shannon famously says, someone is after me and they are trying to kill me. The police say she sounds incoherent and possibly in a psychotic state. She does not know where she is. This is also important because the conspiracy theorists argue that the police took an inordinately long time to arrive, and in the meantime, all sorts of nefarious behavior was taking place. And all I'm saying is that from 451 onwards, we can hear everyone that has spoken to Shannon, so we have an idea of what is not happening, i.e. a group of people do not appear to, in fact, be trying to murder at 4.55 a.m., Shannon runs out of Brewer's house, past Pack, and heads towards Gus Coletti's house. Gus Coletti's house is on that, that long causeway. All right, so remember, Brewer's house is here. She runs down this road, hangs a right on Anchor Way, and starts down. So Coletti's house is right before she would have made that turn. It's very close to the gate. At 5 a.m., Shannon knocks on Gus Coletti's door. This is pretty important time-wise. Coletti's been interviewed many, many times, and he's firmly insistent that she knocked at 5 a.m. And he remembers because he was up shaving because he and his wife were going to take a ride upstate. Gus says that he invites Shannon into his house. There's some disagreement on whether or not she did or did not come in. He, over the years, he's, he's unfortunately passed away since then, insisted that she entered his house. It doesn't really matter for our purposes. She keeps saying, help me, help me, help me, and then just stares blankly at Gus. 10 minutes later, at 5.10, Shannon either runs out of Gus's house or simply down his steps. She falls down and hides behind his boat, which is right in his uh, front yard. At this point, the driver, who had been at Brewer's house, is driving down the, the, the causeway following Shannon. Gus sees Pack and yells to him. Pack says they are leaving a party. Gus threatens to call 9-11. Shannon then bolts from behind his boat. She runs past the gate, which we've, met, which we've shown you, which is would be sort of here, and heads south. At 5.21, oh, sorry, 5.14, uh, do we have that? Okay, Coletti, yes, Coletti claims that he followed Shannon and lost sight of her. We will have to take his word at that. At 5.14, according to the police, Shannon's 9-11 call is ended. 5.21, Coletti himself calls 9-11. He then goes to the gate to wait for the arrival of the police. 5.24 a.m., Shannon, who's continued running and is knocking on other people's doors, has knocked on the neighboring Brennan home. They don't let her in. They themselves call 9-11. Around 
Shannon runs from outside the Brennan house to which she has not been admitted and continues to knock on more doors. This would be when she's making that left turn that takes us towards Dr. Hackett's house, which then leads to the, the little pathway into the brush. So a very important thing happens at 535. It starts to get light. Because where I'm going with all this is that we sort of know everything that happened to this woman from when she arrived to when she bolted out of the house claiming that people were after her and trying to kill her, we can account for her whereabouts virtually every minute of that time. But at 5.35, it's starting to get light out. If there's a nefarious perpetrator in the, in the Oak Beach Island community, his chances to do anything on the cover of night are now zero. And it appears that exactly at that point, just as ambient light develops, Shannon runs through this and into the brush, which we've shown you earlier. And uh, there's a lot of poison ivy. As I said, it comes up to about my shoulder. I personally would not, have, would not attempt to, to run into it. And since this case, they've done a lot of clearage of the area, and they've also drained it. So I can only imagine what effort it would have taken for her to run into it. All right. But she did. At 5.40, the Suffolk police arrive at the gate. This arrival time is disputed. The family claims that the police ran, arrived closer to 6 a.m. Who's family? The family of Shannon Gilbert. All right. The family of Shannon Gilbert is suing Dr. Peter Hackard for wrongful treatment of her. They, they're claiming that sometime in the course of this evening, Dr. Hackett took her, in, her into his house, gave her strange medications, and then uh, let her, let her you know, go running out, and that he's responsible for her death because he, he, he assumed a doctor-patient relationship with her, and then let her just go out you know, into, into the night. That's one set of theories. The second set of theories that somehow, in all, in all this is all going on, Dr. Peter Hackett actually killed her. Could I throw another time that question? How does the family, who presumably weren't there, have any idea of the police's time of arrival? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I would argue, and I'm being cynical about this, is that there's a need to create a missing 20 minutes in the timeline. And... The police at the time said they arrived at 5.20. Later on, and you remember I showed you a, a picture that indicated that the chief detective had retired. In an interview, the retired detective Vallone is adamant that the police arrived much earlier than the family claims. All right. This is another important thing, which nobody, to my knowledge, has looked at. And remember, we're talking about a marsh. All right? Now, it's since been drained, but it was, at the time she disappeared, it was a marsh. Okay? I, I, I looked at the tides that evening. And at 5.40, which is just about the time Shannon's running to the marsh, she is running to the marsh at low tide. The tide is only two inches high. Now, that's not the tide in the marsh, that's the tide in the ocean. But remember, there's the space between like where I'm standing in the back of the room is pretty much the distance between this area and the ocean. 
right? It's a beach community. It's real close to the beach. You can throw a stone onto the beach from here, all right? So at 5.40, it's low tide. 5.52 a.m., it's sunrise proper. We don't know where Shannon Gilbert is. Police are looking for her. No one knows where she's gone. And this is, to my mind, I think, the solution to what happened to Shannon Gilbert. At eight, roughly 10 minutes after eight, it's high tide and the water is one foot high. A little before nine, it's the highest point of the day and it's a foot and three inches. Because one of the things that has puzzled everyone is the police have suggested that Shannon Gilbert drowned. And everyone has said, well, no one drowns face up. Well, I think she passed out unconscious in the marsh and the tides took care of it. So that's my, that's my proposed solution or thinking as to what actually happened to Shannon Gilbert. Now, there are arguments back and forth of whether or not she was on drugs or she's not on drugs. We don't know. This is Dr. Hackett, who, as I said, has got one leg and wears a heart defibrillator. Further complications, because nothing in any of these cases is simple the way we'd like. There is no question that Dr. Hackard made at least one, probably two, possibly three, bizarre phone calls to Marie Gilbert. A couple of days after Shannon Gilbert went missing, her boyfriend contacted her driver. They're trying to find Shannon. They're calling the hospital that. Eventually, the driver tells them where she went. On May 1st, the boyfriend and Pack go to Oak Beach and meets, and meets Brewer. They file a police report. The following day, Alex returns to Oak Beach, stop at the gate, and told to wait. Hackett, who is uh, on the board of Oak Beach, comes out and talks to him. Speaks at length. Hackett takes notes, offers to help. Hackett calls the Suffolk police and has them send up a helicopter to search for Shannon. All right. And this is where things get odd. On May 3rd, sometime that day, Hackett calls Marie and speaks to her for five minutes. Hackett later denies that he has made any phone calls. He has made phone calls. What the phone calls say is gets to the heart of, of the Shannon Gilbert mystery. And who's Marie? Marie is Shannon Gilbert's mother. Okay. Thank you. I know. Trust me. It is, no, this is one hell of a messed up situation. All right. Boyfriend and the driver return. Hackett offers again to help get the police involved in the search. Remember, the family is later accused Hackett of murdering her. According to Hackett, it was Alex that gave him the mother's phone number. He then admits he spoke to her twice on that day. There's no issue. Hackard called using his wife's cell phone, which is not exactly the actions of somebody who's really trying to hide the phone calls. Right? However, he does deny for a year that he ever called Marie. One of the reasons why is because Marie claims that in the phone calls that he made to her, he said that the variety of things were said that Shannon was in his care. He ran a treatment center for wayward girls. And by the way, 
the wayward girl's language to me is a giant red flag, because I don't know of anybody in the modern era that says someone runs a home for wayward girls. It's also notable that there's about six different parts in the history of the case where the mother recounts to reporters what Dr. Hackett reportedly said to her, and none of the reports have the identical same language. So the truth is, I don't think anybody knows what Dr. Hackett really said to her mother, Shannon's mother, other than I do believe he called her in an effort to be helpful. And if you read Lost Girls, you'll find that Dr. Ish, Dr. Hackett does have some issues with, shall we say, being helpful. And sometimes it gets him into a great deal of trouble. Uh, to my mind, I think that he's almost like the George Hutchinson of the case. Somebody who interjects himself into it and winds up becoming a suspect themselves as a result. But being, being a little odd and being a little eccentric does not make you a murderer. Otherwise, everybody in this room, with the exception of me, is a legitimate suspect. All right, here's another picture of the, the, the police going through the marsh. Right, just the understanding of what it took to search that area, you, they couldn't get on it by foot, so they had to go and use fireman trucks to take a look while they're hunting for the body. Well, not the body. They don't know where Shannon Gilbert. All right, now, this is another thing that I think people have not really paid a lot of attention to because in the lawsuit between Shannon's mother and Dr. Hackett, there is a rather famous pathologist who is working with the family pro bono, all right? I think we should take a closer look to Dr. Ban because unfortunately he's cast his own reality distortion field over the press and attended discussion. He is an 82-year-old forensic pathology known as the death correspondence on Fox News, and he refers to himself as a witness to the dead. Dr. Batten did serve as New York City medical examiner from 1978 to 1979, approximately 37 years ago. He was involved in criticizing the Kennedy autopsy and has commented on the deaths of Elvis Presley and John Belushi. In 1995, he testified that O.J. Simpson was innocent courtesy of the forensic evidence on the victim's body directly contradicting the evidence of Los Angeles Chief Coroner. I will leave you to contemplate that as the search for the real killers continues. Dr. Bank has achieved some notoriety in legal circles as being the go-to guy when you wish to sue and there is an opposing pathologist. He has testified in over 2,000, yes, 2,000 trials as an expert witness. And in 2012, Marie Gilbert filed a wrongful death suit against Dr. Hagen. Dr. Baden agreed to work for free and, of course, for the publicity. The basis for the suit is the rather dubious claim that Shannon was temporarily in Dr. Hackett's care and that he administered drugs to her before negligently releasing her to her driver, Mr. Pack. Mr. Pack has passed the lie detector test, as has reputedly Joseph Brewer. But we know for certain that Pack passed the polygraph. We already showed you the painstaking timeline of the events uh, that night. I think it exonerates Dr. Hackett. Uh, Dr. Batten is questioning the findings of the original autopsy and has re-examined the disinterred remains. He questions the findings 
by the police that Shannon Gilbert may have drowned. So now we have some background on the good doctor, let's examine some of his recent comments, starting with those reported in March of last year. It's extremely rare for a young woman to die of drowning yards away from where four young women have clearly been murdered. Statistics don't go along with that. All right. The economist in me wants to point out the fallacy here of frequentist approach to rare events. In other words, he's acting like the experiment is repeatable and repeated sampling would lead to 99.99% confidence that these two events never occur together. Serial killers themselves are so rare that the odds of any other infrequent event coupled with them will always be improbable from a statistical point of view. And it is always rare for a young woman to drown, period. In layman's terms, like saying a man hit by lightning could not have won the lottery that week, or that a survivor of the Titanic sinker would not be a survivor later in life of another sinker. However, they are independent random events that simply happened. Shannon's death caused a massive manhunt that spanned enough territory to uncover Lisk's pumping ground, unfortunately for Lisk and tragically for Shannon. Dr. Batten is quoted in an interview saying that he had a long conversation with the mom who told me Shannon had no natural diseases or medical history that would cause or contribute to her death. This is completely and utterly correct, incorrect. Shannon Gilbert was a known bipolar with a long history of drug, drug abuse. Her wallet and belongings, according to Dr. Batten, were strewn about in a way to indicate she may have been carried. No. Her cell phone, shoes, wallet, and pants were found near each other a quarter mile away diagonally into the marsh where they found her skeletonized remains. You would, if Dr. Hackett was Lisk, you would have to believe that the man, despite his physical handicap, somehow got her a quarter of a mile through the, that impenetrable thicket, but was stupid enough to leave her belongings right close to his backyard. I mean, that's serial killer 101. You don't dump in your back. Back here, Martin taught me that years ago. Right. Now, uh, let me get one little thing. Because Steve Syphilis never spares any expense on props. <laughs> I want to discuss Hyode Bone 101. And this is where I'm nervous. Is actually somebody may know something about this is in the audience, <laughs> but you can you can shoot it all down in the question and answer. All right, this is this is this is where the hyoid bone is. Hyoid bone, as you can see, well, it's pretty small. It depends upon obviously the size of the individual. I'm going to say it's about yay, you know what, about four, four or five inches long, and it is noted because it has two horns. Right, the greater horn and the lesser horn is here, and there's these two large horns. Shannon Gilbert's hyoid was found missing the horns, right? which le lends to my mind the notion that an animal may have gnawed on it. All right. I quote Dr. Batten, damage to a hyoid bone and windpipe indicates she may have been strangled. All right. He's talking about the windpipe. His next comment, the larynx was missing. All right, so how do you talk about the windpipe if the larynx is missing? And only the body of the hyoid bone was found. The two greater horns of that neck bone were missing. And then we have this absolute beauty of the headline. 
Autopsy. Craigslist escort Shannon Gilbert may have been tortured before death. All right. This is based on Bannon postulating that a hole in Ohio may have been drilled in the course of torturing her. All right, let's dismiss this nonsense. The original coroner did not know the missing larynx, so that is a non-starter. My guess is it was sent out for slides and was not properly returned. If it was properly returned, it was misfiled. These things happen. All right, I've shown you what the hyoid bone looks like, and I'm just using this so it's easier for you folks to see because it's really more about that one that's got on, but it sits here, all right? It's not attached to other bones. For someone, I'm, I'm just gonna utterly reject the notion that someone could actually drill through this. I mean, you'd have to have an incredibly fine dentist, dental drill, and you're supposed to be doing this on a living victim. And as, you know, I, I consulted with uh, uh, somebody who's the head of a medical school in New York City, and you're saying like, well, even if I were to grant you this micro drill and all that, uh, the woman would be screaming, so her hyoid bone would be moving at the same time that you're trying to drill. So how in God's name would you get a perfect hole through the hyoid bone? And it's impossible. And, and what Dr. Robert Goldberg of Toro College, Toro Medical College in New York City said that, in his opinion, it's a wormhole, pure and simple. And as far as the, the, the horns being disappeared, that whole area is infested by muskrats. And the muskrats are, oh, sorry, actually, one second. I found a willing, uh, a person willing to demonstrate where one's hyoid bone is. And this would be where the, the, the horns would be. And here we have a muskrat. They're big and they chew on things. And you have to remember that Shannon Gilbert's body was in that marsh for 18 months. So it was in there. It was, it was without her clothing, because the clothing was found elsewhere. So her skeleton was exposed to winter, summer, rain, freezing, more animals than you can shake a stick at, wild dogs giant rodents, worms. So any damage to the hyaline bone, in my humble opinion, was caused naturally and is not indicative of any foul play. And the torture issue is just my, it boggles my mind. But anyway, last and not least, Dr. Bannon remarks that she was found on her back and that people that drown are found face down. All right, that, that's fair enough. However, as I've explained to you, Shannon ran into the marsh at low tide and she drowned at high tide. And no one other than our team has ever bothered to take a look at what the tides were that night. So I think the tides explain why the poor woman who was under the influence of something, and we don't know what, we don't know what it is that Joseph Brew and her obtained in that 18-minute run for something that they went out from his house for. Uh, toxicology reports have... This is another area of controversy, because according to the family, they were told that the, pathology, the medical examiner's office only tested for cocaine, and the test was negative. I would argue that the chance that in a high-profile case that the medical examiner would not have won a complete tox screen, which would have cost about $250, uh, is, I just don't find that credible. I think 
there's some misunderstanding between uh, the family and the medical examiner's office and, their, and her legal representation as to what they actually said as to what was found. But as far as we know, the toxicology reports came back negative, but I would suggest given that the remains were skeletonized, they did crack open, I believe, her tibia uh, in an effort to extract marrow and did not find enough to work with from reading between the lines. So the family is arguing that there were no drugs involved and therefore she must have been murdered. I would argue common sense tells you someone calls the police and is frantically saying someone's trying to kill me, they're after me, and starts running around a small beach community knocking on doors and runs into a marsh instead of running through the gate where she could easily have found her, her way out. I'm going, to, I'm going to attribute it to, to drugs and her bipolar condition. So that is, I think, everything you kind of need to know about what happened that night. Now, we gotta get to the issue of like who or what or who is Lisk. And in order to discuss that, you have to understand that the Gilgo Four as well as Shannon, were all uh, internet escorts. And they all advertised on Craigslist. And uh, one of our research team was kind enough to take a look at Craigslist in Chicago and come up with a typical sex ad. Uh, the language is a little bit veiled, but you, you, can get, you can get an idea of what it is this is all about. And, it, you know, since Craigslist has uh, banned uh, the listing of cell phone numbers, they spell them out, 77079, okay. So, uh, the re what, what, what's important to realize is that uh, none of these women were stupid, to put it mildly, and they were all experienced sex workers and they were all experienced in soliciting men through the internet. They also, rather disturbingly, which had a, pretty much the same size. They all were around five feet tall. They're all in their 20s, the ones that we know about. Uh, and uh, next slide. We, again, we don't know whether or not they were found in burlap sacks. The earlier ones were dismembered. The dates of disappearance may give us some hints as to what LISC is all about, because you'll notice that people disappear during what we call, you know, the, 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 in, in season for a beach area, and people don't disappear on a Wednesday or Thursday. So there does seem to be, like our, our, our friend Jack the Ripper, there are some issues that he may be gainfully employed during the week and doesn't do his funny business in the middle of it. I think we can agree it's irrelevant whether or not the, ba you know, the baby is not going to have been tattooed, all right? But it basically leaves us with six out of the nine supposed victims were tattooed. You can also, and if you were to raise your hand and say, well, everyone these days has a tattoo, I would say absolutely. But just work with me for a moment. This is Jessica Taylor's tattoo, which was heavily mutilated. I forget whose tattoos these were. Alright. One of the things I don't one of the things that's gonna go up on the internet, which it would 
prolong this talk by a good 20 minutes is the victim's defense mechanisms. Right? Every single one of them was an experienced escort, and every single one of them had a very rigid routine that they set up in order to meet men on the internet, which is incredibly dangerous, and survive. Uh, Maureen would insist that a friend driver and the, uh, the uh, let's see, oh, let's see, oh, Amber's here, we'll work with Amber, okay. Amber preferred to do, meet, have the, the men come to her home, all right? So a roommate would wait in another room. If it was an alcohol, he would drive her and wait outside in clothes we prefer. All right. Lisk apparently called her up and offered her $1,500. But it appears that one of the preconditions was that she not bring her cell phone or her purse. And instead of having Dave, the roommate, drive her, she left the house and walked down the street and disappeared. And you can see Lana being a member of the Guild Bell Four. All right. Maureen, who was I was going to talk to you earlier, okay. she had very rigid rules. Right? Someone had to come with her and wait in the neighborhood. She would enter the house and text and say she was okay. Preferred not to even do that, normally rented the hotel room, and her rule was always that the Johns had to come with her. She would not go to the Johns room. She only would do tricks in Manhattan. She would not do Brooklyn or Queens. However, she advertised on Craigslist, and she disappeared from Manhattan and wound up on Gilgo Beach. Obviously, these rules were violated. And we could go through each one of them. They all had similar defense mechanisms. They all were ignored. We don't know why. And I'm going to try to get into our theory. And, and trust me, as you can see, there's not a whole lot of facts in this case. So when I start talking about what we think LISC might be all about, it's pure speculation. Right? And then you got to accept it as that because you can easily poke a lot of holes in it. All right. What's, I, I personally are very, very puzzled by the fact that the baby and John Doe, who are not buried together, you know, obviously went on the same call. And we have this horrible notion that it may be a result of something like a phone conversation list where he says to her, bring your child. My wife will look after her. Just speculation. Well, it's the only known picture of Lisk. <laughs> all right. You all, as ripperologists, are familiar with Wrestler's book and the whole discussion of organized versus unorganized. Lisk ticks off every box in the organized. Uh, yeah, he, he, according, because he's made a series of phone calls to one of the sisters of the victims as well as her boyfriend. He's highly intelligent, he's socially competent, he's living with a partner, we believe. He's mobile, probably follows the crime in the news media, may change jobs or leave towns. The offense is planned, the victim is a targeted stranger, he controls the conversation. The crime scene reflects overall control, the body is hidden. Weapon is absent, and he transport the victim or body. So we've just got, you know, it, it's just, it's almost like he read Wrestler and just said, yes, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this, okay. So the question becomes, who or what kind of person do we think Lisk is? And this is where we get into, this is what I just read. Okay. All right. 
The police have not been particularly helpful in terms of revealing information on this case. However, early, early on, there was, when, when, when the Gilgo 4 was found, uh, there, 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 was, there seems to have been a little bit more information that got out. And on uh, Nancy Grace's show, which of course you know, raises its own problems, one profiler was quoted saying that sexual sadists don't want a 10 minute little quickie with this girl raping and murderer. Lisk wants to bring her back and do horrible things, torture her, whatever he's going to do there. He wants the privacy. So he's got to have a place to bring them back. So that's his big thrill, is controlling these women for a long period of time. Clearly, Lisk is into ritualistic behavior. The similar size and weight of the victims, the shrouding and burlap, the disposal in the exact same manner with each body laid out equidistant from each other at Gilgo Beach, with approximately 500 yards precisely from each other. He's attempting to destroy their existence before they met him. There's no ID, no jewelry and clothing. He tosses their bones into the brush as if they were disposable instead of daughters and loved ones. He controls them even in death. He knows he has caused their families a lot of anguish and suffering, even he caused anguish and suffering to the victims themselves. He adds to the suffering with his phone calls. In real life, the perpetrator is not omnipotent, but his fantasies he is. John Douglas has said that serial killers are usually inadequate. Nobody's, and we suspect Lisk, does indeed have a home life and a relationship with a woman. He's probably someone no one suspects if he makes a fatal mistake, which he's avoided for at least 20 years. All right. Get into our, our proposed thoughts as who or what uh, Lisk is. And this is the final part of the talk. It's going to take about five, ten minutes. Dr. Eric Hickey wrote, for some, the road to power is strewn with human sacrifices. Let me be clear, the Lisk road is maddening in its twists and turns, even if shutting one's ears to the internet ravings and fantasies. The police have really imposed a pretty strict blackout on a lot of important details. Over the last four months we've been preparing this talk, we've come to realize that we actually know less about this case than we thought we knew when we started. For example, the author of Lost Girls, Robert Culker, said on a webcast he was told the deaths of the Gilgo Four were labeled strangulation because that is the default when the hyoid bone is broken if the remains are skeletonized. I mention this because BTK, for example, is fond of strangling his victims to near death and then letting them recover and repeating the process over and over. So technically, we can't even say the Gilgo Four were strangled to death. We also don't know whether entire skeletons were recovered, an important issue. Fred and Rosemary West frequently cut the kneecaps off their living victims, as well as fingers and toes. I'm not saying this to shock, but to say how little we do know about Lisk's MO. We don't know if the bodies were skeletonized naturally through exposure or if the victims were defleshed. One forensic professor has theorized that Lisk could be rendering, i.e. defleshing the victims in his home, pouring acid over the flesh to liquefy it and flush it down the drain. It's a horrific notion, not one we raise casually, but it does appear to us that Lisk may have an issue with tattoos. We'll get back to that point shortly. I think the public has unrealistic ideas of what detectives can learn when dealing with cases where so many of the victims are unidentified. We have some idea of what sort of victims Lisk hunts, but remember we have a baby doe and a John Doe to contend with as well. It is completely possible that Lisk has killed men, women, and children. We cannot rule it out. All we can say is that the Gilgo Four shared the same killer. Everything else is conjecture. An information void has never stopped the ripologists from constructing a theory, and we intend to follow that story of tradition. Frankly, we were somewhat terrified ourselves because we know so little yet may be seeing a pattern of escalation. We have no good explanation why bits and bobs of some victims turn up in other body dumps. 
We do know that the torsos tend to be in Manorville and other parts turn up in Gilgo. It might be over time, Lisk has become more confident in his abilities to deflesh the victims and hinder ID in that manner. Perhaps he now has access to storage space he lacked in the mid-90s. All the women are petite and the size that are possibly easily controlled by women. He has clearly carefully considered the nature of his encounters with the victims and controlled the scene. They don't tell anybody where they were going nor with whom. Sometimes, as we've seen, they don't bring a cell phone or purse. They don't even make arrangements for his return. I honestly think that the person that comes to understand why these women drop their guard will be a long way towards solving this case. This is actually the central mystery. Remember, uh, Liz probably has a rather nice car, perhaps an SUV. Remember, these are bags of bones we believe he is tossing, not bodies. He doesn't need to want a truck. He just needs a nice enough car that when Megan, for example, is finished walking down a deserted road from a hotel to a convenience store, she'll get in without fear. As we've said, he doesn't kill in the middle of the week or in the off season. He probably winters somewhere else. Florida, perhaps. All right, here's where we get into our notions of what we think Lisk might be about. While his business may be seasonal, i.e. a landscaper, he's not turning up in dirty clothes driving the company van. A landscaper would have access to burlap bags and might occasionally commute into Manhattan to meet with a client whose second home he is working on. If he's indeed landscaping, he owns the business. He's affluent. He's not living with his parents or in an apartment complex. He has a nice car, money to flash around, and has access to a domestic area where you can keep and possibly alter the condition of a dead body. On Long Island, everyone seems to have a garage. It may very well be that a garage is his workspace. As I said, from the conversations he's had with victims' relatives, he is educated and well-spoken. He speaks in a calm, flat, monotonal fashion, a man in control. A well, slow-metered script, possibly well-rehearsed. Interestingly, he did speak to Melissa's boyfriend, who reported that he sounded at times that he was threatening and drunk, and I would suggest that perhaps Lisk only has courage when he's speaking to vulnerable, petite women. We believe he is white, he's, because he sounds like the phone calls. He is on a mission to rid the world of whores, both, possibly both male and female. He considers them less than human and tosses them by the side of the road. He does not even attempt a shallow burial. Lisk enjoys being able to drive past them on Ocean Parkway, knowing he still controls them, even in death. He is currently in his, between 40 and 50 years old, having first killed in the mid-90s. We believe he may have killed a lot more victims than the 10 or so we've discussed here. He might very well be extremely prolific. The way he deals with stores and disposes of victims has evolved. He also appears to be able to go dormant for long periods of time. In our opinion, he is in a stable relationship, probably married, and has a house where he takes the victims. It may very well be his home, and his wife may know about and participate in the killings. She might help with procurement. This statement has really resonated with me ever since I read about the Moors murders and was thinking about Lisk, where Myra Hinckley says, it's probably because of me being a woman, they never had any fear. The victims got into the car willingly. One of the detectives has theorized that Lisk has wine and dined these women before meeting them. It, it, it is possible, 
but it would take an, an enormous amount of self-control and we're really at a loss of thinking of any serial killers that have groomed their victims to the standpoint of like whining and dying on them. They feel completely comfortable leaving their cell phones and purses and making no arrangements for return. I, I, I'm, I'm, we've been struggling for a couple of months to find think of a parallel. It's possible, we can't, we can't think of one. Whatever it is, he makes his victims feel so comfortable they do drop their defense mechanisms. Routine that have kept them safe have been abandoned. So let us give our thoughts as to what type of man Lisk may be. Let's speculate as to what kind of man Mr. Lisk actually is. We've kicked around several ideas, and of course, this is all pure speculation. But the notion that Lisk fetishizes tattoos has stayed with us. They may be a trigger of sorts. Melissa, who had a tattoo saying Blaze on her lower back, and whose boyfriend is also tattooed, seems to evoke the strongest response of all the victims. We suspect that Lisk may have kept Melissa alive for some time as he tortured her, both for his pleasure as well as information. He may well have called Melissa's sister while Melissa I was able to hear the call. His later comment about watching her body rot may not have been hyperbole. He's ridding the world of horrors, especially horrors that have defiled their bodies with tattoos. So our, our, our current theory is that Lisk represents a male-female team. Uh, and that would be a separate talk. But all you really need to know about them is they tend to be vicious beyond words as they serve to egg each other on. They also tend to remain in close proximity to killing sites and are more likely to kill for cult-related reasons as well as torture and mutilate their victims. And the body counts can be astronomical. The female is constantly showing the man that she can carry her side of the devil's deal. For some, material murders both participation in spectator sport. The truth is that such couples can hide in plain sight, like Frederick and Rosemary West for a very long time. List does seem to use very long phone calls to reassure his victims. Are they three-way phone calls setting up a three-way encounter for over $1,000? Is there a woman in the car when List picks them up? John Lee Reese, who's one of our team members, has theorized that a victim, the female of the couple may have been or is currently a sex worker herself. There's one more possibility. It is repulsive and it conjures stereotypes, but so does serial killing. I will close by gently suggesting it is possible that Long Island serial killer was raised in a religious faith that regards tattooing with disdain. There's a famous quote from Leviticus, which we will have in a second. Oh, we have that already? Okay, sorry, thank you. Not that any true religious feelings are at play here. He might be a lapsed Sunni Muslim or a Mormon. Latter-day Saints strongly discourage the tilling of their body. The problem here is the outward appearance of a Muslim or Mormon isn't going to equate with safety when Lisk calls these women. We realize that some people wrongfully seize on this as an indictment in an ethnic group, one that outnumbers Protestants by almost two to one in Nassau County. We think he might be a lapsed Orthodox Jew or a Sid whose wife is very subordinate to his needs, proscribed from tradition by asking too many questions of her husband. She is someone who doesn't go out on the Sabbath herself, but that does not stop her husband as he serves his own personal angry God. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the rest of the conference. Questions? As you can see, this is an extraordinarily difficult case to boil down to an hour, and there's a lot of slides that will be up on the net 
for Rippercast that you can take a look at at your own leisure. But are there any questions? I guess a comment or two. Um, Please. First of all, when you talk about, you know, uh, basically uh, disrespecting a person by dumping them, in fact, the most efficient way to get rid of the body is a surface burial. Absolutely. Uh, first, remove the clothing, uh, break the body up if you can, uh, dump it on the surface rather than burying it. Uh, so it, I'm not sure. Yeah, no, I, I hear you on But it's very efficient, which would go to somebody who's intelligent. So, right, but most of the comment about the size of the women, it could very well be a small man killing these yes. people, and certainly doesn't want to pick up a six-foot Amazon or something, <laughs> or a six-foot transsexual or whatever, transvestite or whatever. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, there are other issues that come up. Yeah, there are, although the problem is that whatever it is he presents, however he presents himself when he calls, he is putting these people totally at ease and they are dropping their defense mechanisms. Show up with a child in your car. That's even more appalling, but yes. Yes, Martin. You said uh, Shannon's clothes were found apart from her body. Where were they found? And what do you deduce from that? All right. I, the police theory is that she was high as a kite when she was running around and that her clothing got, well, I will tell you, I, I was extremely skeptical of that until I went there and I can tell you, I can actually see how one's clothing would get completely caught up in the bramble and the thorns. Now, once you take off your pants, which would be also muddy and hindering your, your, your skin is going to get cut, cut to shreds. So it's not like there's any easy solution. But if the killer indeed disposed of her body deeper into the marsh, why would he have left her clothing, cell phone, and purse, you know, basically a quarter mile diagonally, relatively close to Dr. Hackett's house? Yes. And the, the, one, the one thing about Lisk is that he always depersonalizes the victims. In other words, the, the others had to be identified by DNA. Uh, and in fact, as you can see, we still have plenty of John and Jane Doe's. So a lot of them still to this day have not been identified. He's been very careful of making sure that the victims are not identified. In the case of Shannon Gilbert, he would have had to been like violated his own rules and left things that identified her nearby. If she were in a psychotic state from that, uh, it wouldn't be surprising to be incoherent, strip your clothes off and pick a direction. Right. I, I think that what happened is she arrived at uh, Brewer's home and she didn't have whatever Brewer wanted to use that night. And so they made a run, you know, that approximately 18 minute run that we don't know where they went. And we don't know what they were able to, you know, it's like two o'clock in the morning out, you know, in the middle of nowhere. What it is she they ultimately came with it was spice or like some synthetic drug that, you know, led to a psychotic break. But like I said, she she was known to use cocaine and heroin. She was a known bipolar. She went out with Brewer to get something. I think it just set off a chain of events that 
looks like the work of a killer, but in fact has, I don't want to say innocent explanation, because it's all pretty horrible, but I think it has a solution along the lines that you just suggested. I think also marijuana occasionally is coated with PCP, so even if it were something as simple as smoking a joint, uh, could have unintentionally. Right. Right. And for the listeners at home, it's being suggested that perhaps PCP or marijuana laced with PCP was consumed that evening, and I, I, I completely concur. And it would not have been picked up in a tox screen from remains that were in the middle of uh, outside 18 months later, I think. Did they look in the bones to see if there were any diatoms as an indication of... We don't know. That's the stock answer to virtually every question about this case. The police have said very little, and uh, they have, you know, they, the, the victim's relative said he sounds educated and in control. The police haven't even suggested what he sounds like on the on the on the, on the cell phone, which is what, you know, and, and the joke among us is that well, ripperologists always have a Jewish suspect, but I'm suggesting that if he called up and he had a heavily Jewish accent. The, uh, the, these women might have thought of him as not particularly threatening, and he's also offering them a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars for. We, we're not sure. Like we're hypothesizing a three-way, or and again, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's actually going to be a three-way. It's just that there's some suggestion that there's a woman involved in our, in our notion. And you're, you're suggesting that perhaps he shows up with a child, which still gets a sort of in the same place. He has a family, and it's really horrifying. Okay, it can't be an imposing individual or a simple woman got new. Exactly. He can't show up like, there's been a lot of hypotheses that he's a landscaper or, some, or a clam digger or a fisherman of some sort. He's not showing up that night in a truck. He's, he's showing up in a fancy SUV, I think. So. Yeah, I mean, if he's promising $1,500 and shows up in a clunker. Exactly, right. He does, right. He does, right. Precisely. It's not that he's, we don't know that he's going to give them $1,500. We just know that when he calls, he sounds like incredibly that he has it. And then when they see him and they're all willing to meet him somewhere outside of like the site of security cameras, like for example, uh, Megan was staying at the Holiday Inn in Hapong. She didn't, she didn't get picked up in the front door where a security camera. She walked down a deserted road to where there's a convenience store to get picked up. So they're all willing to do something rather unusual, but when they see him, they're getting in. So the store, he's spinning a coherent narrative. We just don't know what the hell it is. What would those girls expect to make for a, you know, I mean, all this he's requesting something slightly out of the normal. Okay. Uh, for whatever that amount of money is, you can see why it's an attractive offer. If you read the book, uh, there's a common thread here, which is that the women used to work for escort services, where they used to earn a fair amount of money. And it wouldn't be out of the case for them to make $1,000 or so. But that's with a high, escort services catering to higher end clientele. They had all decided that they would make more money advertising themselves and cutting out all the middlemen. So the answer is they all would have rather have had $200, $300, $400 they would have gotten for turning a trick through Craigslist as opposed to the $1,000 or $1,500 that they would have made through the escort service. I would say that they would have typically charged about $200 for a trick. So he's offering five, you know, upwards of five times the normal amount. And it's, they believe it. 
So it's not so it's not someone calling up sounding incoherent and there, there, there's something going on here, and that's why we're suggesting either his accent places him in an ethnic group that is viewed as non-threatening, or and these phone calls are reputed, supposedly rather prolonged, that he's also saying, hey, speak to my wife. Like, because we'd like to, we'd, you know, this is a party for three of us. And, and it's obviously a believable web he's woven. Unless this could be a repeat, a repeat, you know, they, he gets the girls completely normal and then calls them back yes. and they completely trust him. One of the few comments from the police is from a detective who says that he thought, he believes that Lisk has wined and dined these victims. It's possible, but the only problem with that is, remember, they're disappearing in the middle of the night in Suffolk County. There are no restaurants open. There's no wine and dining occurring that night. So we're looking long and hard for any kind of parallel case where someone has groomed victims like this, and we're hard-pressed to find them. I mean, you know, Fred and Rosemary West groomed victims, but they weren't wanting and dining them. They had them over their house, you know, they you know, had some you know, initial foreplay or drugs were consumed, but it wasn't anything elaborate. And even if you, I don't know, there's something, we're missing something, and we don't understand why the police have been so reticent to give out any information about the case, other than possibly the fact that they don't want to alarm people and they don't want to point fingers at ethnic groups, you know, without firm proof. Because it's simply a hypothesis. Anything else? Yes? Yeah, there, there's a scene in the book where uh, they're all having dinner together and Marie is saying that she believes her daughter was forced by a group of men to consume drugs that night and that they're, they're a group, they were somehow part of a larger uh, human trafficking network and they were grooming her for something, but Shannon didn't want to go along with it and that's why she had to be silenced. You know, yeah, it, the, book, the book is a spectacularly well-written piece of true crime uh, nonfiction. But it suffers from the fact that the families have shaped the telling of the story. So it's very much, you know, what, what, what do they call it? Uh, I think the FBI term is deification of the victim, uh, where, of course, my daughter's not, you know, it, it goes through all the different, my daughter's not a sex worker. Okay, maybe she was a sex worker, but she wouldn't take drugs. Okay, well, you know, maybe she was a sex worker and she took drugs, but she was forced to. So if you go on the internet, there's incredibly elaborate theories that somehow Gilgo, that, that Oak Beach community was actually like uh, ground zero for an entire yeah, like human trafficking was, network. Like, like yeah, right, because they have to work the pedophiles in because they have to explain you know, the, the, the toddler. Yes, it, it's, it's a mess. I mean, it's understandable if you're a 
Yeah, I, I don't think that uh, the actions of Marie Gilbert have helped with the solution to the case, but I don't want to go so far as to say somehow she's like, she's the reason why they haven't solved it. The reason they haven't solved it is because there's so many unknown victims and there's so little forensic evidence at the scene. So that's it. I don't think it's... Well, he's definitely, to use, you know, ripper line, he's down on the whores and he shan't stop ripping until he just gets buckled. But I think he's, he's clearly sadistic because what I didn't get into is that he called Melissa's sister, I think about five or six times, uh, you, know, de you know, making derogatory comments about Melissa's sister and, and, and who, who is half white, half black, and he made a lot of derogatory comments about her being of mixed race. So that set him off. Uh, he called the boyfriend, was it like 30 times, Blaze? Yeah, I think he, he called the boyfriend 30 times and he went into the fact that Blaze had tattoos on his back. And of course, it's extraordinarily dangerous from one you know, phone, series of phone calls that I like, think that, oh, tattoos are the trigger. But we're just wondering. Because early on, one of the early victims, you can see that he did a, you know, a very thorough job of hatching and mutilating the tattoo, but now they're turning up as skeletons, we think. So he's evolved in some stand, you know, in some way with Yes. Prostitutes show up, they normally disappear. They work in an area, they decide to go to Florida for a while or you know, New York or wherever they go. Uh, homeless, you know, I've seen five or six disappear, nobody paid any attention to it. like white chat. Yes. Right, right. And, and, they go, and in the book, it's spun as sort of like this means the police are indifferent. But I, I think it's actually. Correct. The police get a call of a missing sex worker. They're not dropping everything to find them because the people are, by nature, transient. They use, uh, you know, fake names. All all these victims advertise on Craigslist under different names, and I, I forgot to mention that the repeat customer theory. The problem is every time they put an ad in, they frequently did it under a different name. So I don't see how like, oh, my, my girl is advertising tonight, and I'm going to call it. It's very problematic. Anyway, I've taken almost an hour and a half of your time, and I'll stop unless someone's got one last burning shanker that they need uh, <laughs> that they need answered. Oh, well, thank you. Freak with a sword in one hand and his girlfriend's head in the other, stark naked. Okay, and it's it's that ability to just 
you know, alter your, your physiology. You know, PCP does that. Where there, there's a number of cases that are associated with, you know, people running around stark naked, you know, with a sword or, you know, strangling people or bursting into houses. Um, PCP has been, at least in my experience, uh, mixed with over uh, marijuana to give it a better kick. Uh, you know, it's, this is mostly way back when, but... Uh, Could you repeat what you said earlier about people on PCP tending to remove their clothing? Yeah, the, 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 your whole physiology starts to change, okay? And when your physiology starts to change, you get excited, you get excited, your core temperature starts to go up, your body gets hot. If you get hot, what do you do first thing, you know, normally, you know? See, we never thought of that. We thought that the clothing was taken off because, like, it was caught up in the brambles, which, which, which then raises her, then she's exposing her skin to the bullet. So it's not, we've never been completely comfortable with that aspect of the narrative. What you're saying about raising her core body temperature makes complete sense. And whatever it is she took had to have relatively quick onset because we know that she's relatively okay for her. Most, most drugs will have a, an impact if you smoke or inhale it or whatever within 20 minutes. So, and that certainly fits the timeline that you have there. Um, yeah, I, I would tend to go towards marijuana. Nobody, at least nobody I've ever heard of, wants to take amphetamine and start sex. I mean, you know, it, 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 it's just not something. Cocaine would be useful, but again, you probably need to be in a psychotic state to start with and then use the cocaine rather than have it unless you snort a ton of it. You know, which is kind of unlikely if they they didn't have any and then they had to go look for it. Uh, Whatever it is, someone wanted. They didn't have it. When... Yeah, the, the guy was a brewer. The guy whose house that was. I would take him in and I would say, "We've decided that she's dead from drug abuse." Okay, what did you do? What did you? I mean, I would just lean on it. Lawyer or no lawyer, you can do that because I think that's what that that's the first step and. Under the law, if you initiate a process, you're responsible for that process wherever it went up. What's worth? A couple of months later, after this one, they said the police completely ransacked his house and searched every inch of the yard for any kind of forensic evidence, like dogs, everything. You know, like they gave, they gave the scene. Like, yeah, but that's too late. Well, part of yes. Uh, it's uh, unless he's the serial killer and burying them in his basement like Gacy was. Okay, you know it's it's not it's not relevant. But he must have a history, and they could just go back. Look, we're going to talk to every person in your life. Okay, unless you tell us what the hell you gave her. And at that point, I don't think that this is the first time they had a prostitute come out to his house. I would say that's probably true. Okay, and you know it's you know if that's your thing, you know, Lord love you. But <laughs> uh, you know, at some point, using drugs with it creates problems, and uh, we, we we've seen serial killers. But picking prostitutes, picking uh, smaller women, I think those are more of an indicator. Uh, I don't know if that's quite a a, it was a physical type, but I, looking at the women themselves, I'm not sure that was a uh, 
the, the, well, the tattoo the, on the back, you know, is called a tramp stamp. Yes. Okay, so if that were something setting him off, uh, I'm not sure that's the higher end of it. Uh, the guy has got to be somebody who is totally unassuming. A Mr. Peepers type, you know, uh, individual, Woody Allen, you know. Right, right, right. right. Uh, it, it's, it can't be somebody who's big and imposing because nobody in their right mind would. No matter what. Oh, yeah, it's, you know. We rolled him out. Oh, that's good, you know, although there are other things we could probably include him in. Uh, oh, yeah, day's not over. Day's not over, yeah. Uh, we, we could find something that'll fit. But that's the problem with profiling, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, I think uh, I think this guy has been doing this a long time. I agree. And he'll eventually make a mistake. But I think it'll be, oh, he's probably made down. several. It's just you know finding them. Once you find it, then it unravels backward. But uh, yeah, there's. I would. I would look. I would go back in time. He's got to be between forty and fifty, as you say, probably. Uh, I would go back in time and look at the high school records locally and see how many students might have been, uh, shall we say, referred to. Because uh, he's he started this somewhere very early. I mean, this is this is a, a full blow. He's thought about this thing for years. Very carefully planned. Thought about it, and he's not disorganized. Uh, getting back to your Jewish thing, the one thing I would think about is if I had to dismember a body, I would cut the throat and hang them upside down to drain the blood first. And that comes in with kosher. Okay. Yeah, okay. Oh, well, you know, you, you can always find a Jew to blame, right? I mean, that's the. That's the. Uh, okay. But, uh, I mean, there, there are things that, that fit together if you want to if you want to stretch it that far. Uh, I think he must have an area where he's doing this. The fact, he's, the fact he wants to obliterate the people rather than, yes. I think, is significant. And, uh, and, and, I, and I think... Uh, the fact that any parts of them are available, I think, is to, to meet the idea that, you know, he can relive that as he drives on by back and forth to work yes. or back and forth to the cottage where he lives or something. And so that road would be something. Yeah, it means something to somebody. And it's, it's not... Uh, I worked out at Brookhaven National Lab out there for six months. And uh, Shirley, which is road... Uh, which is, you know Shirley. Uh, that was the center of the porno pornography industry for decades down there. So... You know, you kind of wonder, just, is there a connection? Is there somebody who's, you know, his parents were involved in it or something, grew up to, you know, have some kind of view? I mean, you can start stretching it, but that's not a simple area where, you know, uh, you know, it's not, it's not like, uh, uh, you know, the Hamptons. <laughs> no, 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 wait, wait. Yeah, I, I think one of the false... Uh, Roads that has been followed in this case is that while I don't think he's poor, the notion that he's like living out of the Hamptons or like no, it's not. It's not. No, there not there are places home. you could go and do this if you had that much money. Right, he's not coming from the Hamptons. 
He would have to be middle class with an area, probably. You think a garage? I don't know. I, if I, if I were doing it, I would have a greenhouse or something like that. You know, perhaps. Uh, well, okay. You know what? Uh, yeah, I know. All of a sudden, click, click, click. No, 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 you no, know. no, no, no. Uh, there is. Uh, I, I don't have. To, I didn't have time to get into it, but. After Dr. Hackett, the next popular suspect is a, a fellow that owns a series of nurseries who killed himself the day after Shannon Gilbert's body was found. Now, the problem is, I don't think Shannon Gilbert was a list victim, so I don't see how it triggered. Well, I think what might have happened, if in fact he were the guy, is that, in fact, he thought, now they're going to investigate, they're going to find me. Well, I mean, there's. Been investigating all the time. I mean, she was the first to, to disappear. Right. The problem would be like when they found the Gilgal Four. Like the, okay, the, the, the link between this guy is uh, nursery owner of nursery. Uh, therefore, had access to Gilgal bags. Seasonal aspect to the business. But the trigger is supposed to be that he killed himself the day, the day after Shadow was found. And I would argue that. It's probably the, irrelevant. The, the, well, if I was. If he, it's when they found the Gilgo 4, I'd go like. This, the, the, you know, they're on. They're, they're, now they've found things. And, and they didn't find her for quite some time after the Gilgo 4. This was the whole frustration. So, yeah, I think, I think it's a hard press to play connection. Other than that, it's like a nursery owner. Well, dismembering somebody is a sloppy business, okay? And so, uh, you know, cutting fingers off or, you know, you could do that with a pair of, of you know, tree trimmers. You know, let's get back to our little guy here, you know, the little clippers. Uh, so there has to be a place where not only can he dismember somebody, but he has to get rid of the blood. And the easiest way to get rid of the blood is to hang somebody upside down over a drain, cut their throat, and drain them. Okay. Kosher, and, kosher, kosher. Well, it's... Uh, you know, yes. It's... Echoes of... Echoes of it, a lot of things, you know. But clearly, you know, there has to be something... He must be confident that the blood's not going to be detected. Right. So... Uh, but, but just so... Uh, just so the other members of the team can hear this. Uh, what, what is the what forensic association we were suggesting? The American Association of Forensic Scientists. Okay. Well, and they, once a year to... in February, usually they have a uh, a meeting. AAFS. Just e, e, you know, just okay, Google it. Yeah, if you need to. But uh, those are types of things that uh, this is a nice little puzzle. And a lot of people certainly have different views of it. Uh, the yeah, it's there, there's something askew there. Suffolk and, and Nassau usually work together on their labs, and they do pretty good work. They're, yes, 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 yes. I, I wouldn't think of them as being incompetent, although no. there are places I think yeah, are incompetent. No, I That's but, not right, right. But the uh, medical examiner for Suffolk for this, the woman that Baden is alive in Boston, she's now the chief medical examiner for Brooklyn. So it's not like she's like a slash. Well, medical examiners are are an odd bunch, and some of them really come up with some bizarre theories. Cyril Wecht and I have had differences of opinion and a number of other people. Uh, Every now and then they get uh, Aronson and I in Philadelphia had a number of differences. Uh, 
It's a question of moving out of your area of comfort and your area of knowledge. And I mean, to talk about torture, that would be the first. That would be the first ever recorded torture if that were somebody drilling into the highway. Okay, first ever. Uh, and, you know, it, it usually gets broken, and it usually gets broken because it's easy to break. And when you don't find pieces of it, it's normally some kind of animal scavenging. If, if uh, the whole issue of strangulation of the Dilbo 4, where Kolker is saying the police told him that they're labeling a strangulation because the hyoid bone is broken, can you envision scenarios where the bone would be broken just through causes other than strangulation? Well, yeah. I mean, it's certainly animal scavenging is the first it's the first thing that comes to mind in that case, particularly. Uh, uh, I'm sure that if there was something really uh, weird about it, the medical examiner would have noted it. I mean, it's one of the first things you look for, uh, uh, particularly when you have skeletalized remains. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, would interpretation of what you see be relevant, uh, be related to the experience of the medical examiner? And the answer is yeah. Uh, now, sometimes medical examiners make mistakes. And, uh, you know, to, to, for Baden to, to use the idea that, that the larynx is missing because of, you know, some souvenir or something, I think is just kind of, kind of strange. I would like to see whatever else is present on the body as I say, if any bones were missing I mean I saw a body skeletalized in one day at the Philadelphia airport there was a guy who was killed, we know, we know because he was killed on a Wednesday, he was found late Thursday and the body was skeletalized I mean he had been eaten by every imaginable creepy crawly there ever was and that was in a swamp no less right outside oh, there you go. Okay, so, Shit, welcome to Team Syphilis yeah well uh, Talk about we even have a we even have a badge. Talk about really weird introductions. Uh, I was testified in a rape case, and the the, the guy was guilty as hell. I mean, everybody admitted it except him. It was a jury trial, and as I was going in, I knew the judge, and you know they they announce you when you walk in, and Philadelphia has these beautiful wood, you know. Uh, uh, tables, desks, and everything. And I'm walking up, and he said, I'd like to introduce Dr. Charles Tomosa. He's the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania's foremost expert on involuntary deviant sexual intercourse. <laughs> and the jury was a little laughing while they were on the floor. The, the, the district attorney couldn't stop laughing. The, process, the defense attorney was laughing. The judge had a smirk on his face. And the defense going, what? That, what you know, what's happening to me? You know? So, you know, you do get weird comments, you know, so you could be an expert on syphilis if you like. Uh, uh, team uh, syphilis, I guess, you know. Well, yeah, it's because well, well, it's, 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 uh, when I was originally working on the diary, and I, uh, I decided I was going to reread uh, Lawrence Mayberg's trial, what's very interesting is that when the uh, prosecution rested and the defense started it's part of the case. The very first witness called on to defend Florence Weber was a syphilologist at a, at, a, at a famous Liverpool hospital. And he talks about like treatment with mercury and treatment with arsenic. And the defense is asking, like, is it common for you to use arsenic in your, you know, 
pressure treatments. And they don't say what for. Like, in other words, it's all the code. Like, is it yes, absolutely. And is it, have you ever had a patient die from arsenic? And he says, I've never lost a patient from arsenic. And he goes, and then the judge is questioning him about all the various heavy metals and, like, what would the course of treatment have been. And all corresponds to what was... What James Maybrick was known to take. So the, the reason why it's interesting is because it doesn't have to be the case that he was Jack the Ripper. It just he could just be off his rocker. Well, you have this little cycle that goes on. Uh, if you take arsenic, your stomach really gets screwed up badly. Okay, and for the the treatment for that is bismuth salts. Yes, yes. And so you. You just tumble along badly. Yes. And mercury was used for a number of different things. Calomel, yes. it's in my lifetime that they stopped using calomel, okay? So it's not not something that was in a distant, dark past everybody no, forgot about. No, 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 absolutely. absolutely. I, I, um, and you know, it's funny because, you know, obviously you didn't have a mic, and I, I'm not, my hearing is not great. Uh, and like when you first asked the question, I thought you said cow's milk. And I said, like, oh, Jesus Christ. And it's like coming, it's coming from outer space. Like, yeah, you know, like, no, it's calamine. Right, right. I know, no, I know, right, exactly. Yeah. Calamine, what, right, was used, uh, yes, obviously was used in the I was thinking, like, oh, my God, cow's milk, what a guy. And he had seemed so sane when he was giving his presentation. You know, yes. He seemed so knowledgeable. Whether, and then all of a sudden, or, yes. Or do I not know something? Well, as long as I'm not smoking something. Well, it's, uh, yeah. You know, there are other diseases associated, tuberculosis for one, with cow's milk and everything, but anyway. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, heavy metal poisoning does create all kinds of strange things. And uh, certainly bald people, you know, if you start looking at these people who, you know, are bald, you know, men, you know, unfortunately they wore a lot of hats in those days. But, um, yeah, heavy metal poisoning would have been a way to handle that. Uh, certainly with mercury salts, uh, but uh, getting back to the Long Island guy, I think uh, I think uh, I would start doing a, a um, go to one of the local newspapers there and start going backwards in time. I, I, there's got to be something weird, you know, you know, local cow found, you know, dismembered or something back there, uh, you know, because this guy. This guy just didn't decide to wake up one day and start killing people. It had, it had to have had, and he has to have some skill. I mean, it's that you just don't take a body, take a chainsaw, and cut him up. I mean, it, 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 it's sloppy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's why I think that if, uh, if he is dismembering these people, particularly torso, I mean, cutting off the arms and all, uh, that, that's going to be bloody. And so he, he has to have a place where he can do this. Or, you know, it's... a place that other people don't go, because it's going to leave stains somewhere. If you do it right, it, if you do it right, it, you could do it in a fairly small area. It, it, well, uh, keep it pretty clean. Yeah, well, uh, you know, if you have a drain in your garage. Yeah, if you have a drain. And if I had a drain, I would start looking in there immediately. 
because you wind up with pieces of skin and other things in there that uh, so that would be yeah, exactly. so, so he picks them up in the car, car's nice, drives them home, goes into the garage, the garage connected to the house. How does he kill them? That's the interesting part. Well, we don't know because we don't even know that they were strangled to death. We, we, we don't know. We, we really don't. That's, we have unlearned things. As that, like, we came into this thinking we had a, you know, obviously a chief suspect. We realized that he couldn't have done it. And we've actually lost data as we've gone, as opposed to learning. Well, it's... Somebody should be able to look at the torso and tell you what, how the, the, uh, the arms were removed and legs were removed. I mean, that's clear and unequivocal. Uh, if you're, if you're going to be cutting the, the ligaments and tendons to sort of pull things apart, uh, that's, that, that requires some knowledge, a very sharp knife for one thing. And uh, do you pull them apart or do you cut them apart? Um, if there's a saw, there's what's called kerf marks, K-E-R-F. They're just basically marks that are present on the bone. That should give you some idea of what was used, a saw, bandsaw. I've cut bone with bandsaws. I reassembled a guy once that way. Uh, the man was over uh, overheard two men plotting a robbery. They killed him. And they, the guys happened to be two butchers at a local restaurant, and they took the guy and they made little parts out of him with a bandsaw. And I spent Christmas Eve once in Chester County at about zero degrees Fahrenheit, reassembling this guy. They wrapped him in brown paper. I mean, it was just perfect. And we had a head. We had parts of the arm, then the full arms, then the torso, and so on. Found almost all, all the parts, believe it or not. But it was all over Chester County. And so you need, you know, you, you need to look at the bones themselves. There's, there's information in there that you could find. And if you're, somebody's using a, either a saw or a very sharp knife, they're still going to leave pieces. It's got to be, in, I think it's in a drain. I would just hang them upside down and, and cut their throat. And particularly if they're small, it's easy to do. It's actually uncanny how he finds women 95, 97, 100. No, it's not uncanny at all. Well, 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 he's looking. Yes, but it requires a lot of work to look. I think, I mean, this is something we didn't get into the talk, but one of the reasons why we think that it's more than one person. It takes a lot of work to find, I mean, how many people has he called that don't fit his criteria or are not willing to go along with his requirements? What I would do, okay, is simply call up. Get, get the prostitutes, line them up, and say, okay, have you ever got a phone call where a guy asked if you were five foot five, five foot two, three, you know, you six foot, uh, you know, I mean, I've seen transvestites, six foot six women on the listings and all. They could. Some, yeah. Some, yeah, some do, but it also, it sounds like a lot of, it kind of yeah, but yes, there's a lot of dishonesty. Well, of course, and so you would call up. You know, can you give me a reference? No, of course not. But, you know, you, you'll hear things. You know, you talk to them long enough, you find everything. The secret, of, the secret of finding out information from a suspect is just to keep them talking like I do. You'll find everything about me you ever want to know if you just keep me talking long enough. It's the same thing with anyone. You know, th th that's the difference between interviewing and interrogation. Uh, you want to stop the recording again? Sure. Well, thank you. Can I just call you? Thank you.
And that was Team Syphilis's presentation in Incident at Oak Beach, Ripperologists Look at Lisk, from the 2016 Baltimore RipperCon, Jack the Ripper, and True Crime Convention. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you'll be able to find all of our many roundtable discussions and conference talks on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as well as other topics in Victorian true crime. You can also find the show in iTunes and find us on Facebook in the Rippercast True Crime Discussion Groups. I'd like to again thank everyone involved with the Baltimore Conference in making these talks available. I hope that you're enjoying them and there will be more to come. So stay tuned and we'll see you next time. You don't